Well, thank you so much, Bruce, and the Montana Historical Society for allowing me to hold you all hostage. I mean, give you my presentation this morning. <laughs> Um, well, yesterday morning, Courtney talked about sewers. Today, I'm going to talk about dead people. So welcome to breakfast at the Montana <laughs> History Conference. Um, actually, it was at the Montana Historical Society that this research got started, this little research rabbit hole that I jumped into <laughs> got started. Crystal and I were uh, lucky to get the Bradley Fellowship last year, and we were up quite a bit uh, in the archives doing re research on Fort Parker. Uh, and I had been going through reels and reels and reels of microfilm with the Bozeman Times, uh, looking for anything having to do with Fort Parker, skimming, skimming articles. And I ran across a little article I thought, mm, no, no Fort Parker there. Went on to the next one, then I went, wait, what? <laughs> and I had to go back and read this little blurb of an article. I'm like, oh my goodness, it looks like there's a spiritualism story to be told about Bozeman, Montana. So uh, I jumped rapidly into this little rabbit hole and uh, this is about a year and a half's work of research that, to be able to bring you this story. I don't know if anybody's done this story before, but um, it's quite interesting and it's a fascinating tale uh, to think about how spiritualism played its role here and how it reflected the national picture of spiritualism. I'm a bit of a spiritualist junkie. Um, I, most of my earlier research has always been in uh, the expression of the spiritual uh, across history. So spiritualism was something I already had a background in, knowledge, but man, this year I really learned so much about it. So I'm happy to share this uh, topic with you. I hope you enjoy it. <coughs> all right, uh, for a moment, I'd like you all to imagine yourself a woman uh, in 1863. You can do that. You're the mother of five children, but you gave birth to eight. One was stillborn, two died before the first year of life. Your husband died a few years back of cholera or typhus or yellow fever or any of the numerous uh, outbreaks of disease in the 19th century. Uh, and you've just received word that your oldest son has been killed in a bloody battle in the Civil War. You can kind of all imagine that was not an uncommon story in the 19th century. Now if someone came up to you and said that they could speak to the dead, wouldn't you listen? Well, if you multiply that by about 100,000 times, that kind of gives you the idea of how spiritualism spread so rapidly through the 19th century. Spiritualism's popularity couldn't be denied. Spiritualist writer Emma Harding, I think we should be here, estimated that in 1869, there were 11 million spiritualists uh, in the United States out of a population of 28 million people and 100 million spiritualists worldwide. So that gives you an, a sense of the, the power of this uh, movement that made its way through, the, um, through America and also across the, uh, the pond. So my talk will focus on spiritualism and the forces that spread its message throughout the country, uh, its manifestation in Montana and the West. And finally, though, I will explore the little credited influence that spiritualism had on the great reform movements of the 19th century, which came to final fruition in the 20th century with the civil rights movement and other movements such as that. On the night of March 31st, 1848, Mr. and Mrs. Fox escorted their daughters, 11-year-old Kate and 13-year-old Maggie, to bed in their modest salt box house in the town of Hydesville, New York. The house had been more creaky than usual. 
the last few days, and that evening the incessant rapping uh, seemed to be increasing. Later, when Mrs. Fox went to check on the girls, she found that younger Kate was saying, now do as I do, as she snapped her fingers three times. Three raps immediately followed. Three raps mean yes, said Katie. At that moment, Mr. and Mrs. Fox sensed the house creaks may be coming from a disembodied spirit. Once a pattern of communication was established over the course of a few days, Mr. Splitfoot, as Kate came to call the spirit, uh, revealed to a growing audience that in life he had been an itinerant tinsmith who had stopped at the house uh, and the previous owner had brutally murdered him and buried him in the basement. Well, the story hit the local papers and then it hit the national papers. And in a short time, the Fox sisters were touring the country as spiritual mediums, telling their story and contacting the dead for people in audiences all around the country. And this was the birth of spiritualism. Spiritualist papers and journals also began spreading the message of contact in the great beyond. I'm going to hold this because this is a little awkward if you don't mind. I'm sorry. Just do it this way. Spiritualist papers and journals began spreading the message of contact in the great beyond. The Banner of Light, one of the most popular journals, was published from 1857 to 1907 and boasted a circulation of 30,000. At least 85 other spiritualist journals uh, circulated information about spiritualists, mediums, philosophy, as well as important issues of the day, such as abolition, women's rights, and child labor, among others. So the, uh, just as these journals were the medium for the message of spiritualism, spiritualism itself became the medium for the message of reform. Only because of the social upheaval of the 19th century could spiritualism as a belief system ever have reached the popularity that it did. Consider these major social changes uh, happening to people in the 19th century. Almost everyone was touched with tragic death from outbreaks of diseases and the high death tolls of the Civil War. Increasing cultural secularization led to the marginalization of death with the rural cemetery movement, which moved the dead from the city churchyard uh, in the middle of town to the outskirts of town, uh, to these lovely park-like settings, um, which left people without their traditional cultural systems for dealing with loss. The increasing understanding of science theories and unseen forces such as electricity, magnetism, telegraphy, could such forces also enable spirit communication? Finally, the strict Calvinist doctrine began to be questioned, particularly the ideas of predestination and child damnation. Early 19th century Calvinism held little hope for the redemption of souls and life everlasting a difficult pill to swallow for mothers so commonly losing children to a variety of childhood illnesses. The religious great awakening saw preachers touring the country holding revivals in religious camps to preach a more tolerant faith. Many of these new spiritual ideas were coming out of upstate New York and New England, a region preached to with such fiery fury it came to be known as the burned over district. And it was here in this hotbed of uh, religious soup that spiritualism emerged. Spiritualism moved its way across the country through a variety of practitioners. 
Healing mediums channeled spirits with medical knowledge and powers who gave instructions for treatment to the medium with the dangers of orthodox medicine in the 19th century, which included bloodletting and high doses of morphine. You can imagine people were looking for alternative ways of treatment. <laughs> Trans speakers spoke in public, channeling spirits on topics of the day. Speaking in public had long been socially unacceptable for women. These roles were limited to the private sphere. Trans speaking, however, gave women an opportunity to find a public voice, albeit a dead one, as they often channeled male spirits who spoke their messages through them. The early trans speakers paved the way for later women speakers who toured the company spe country speaking about women's rights and interests. In fact, the women's suffrage movement was closely tied to the spiritualist movement. Spiritualists often spoke at suffrage rallies, and suffragists often spoke at spiritualist gatherings. The tie was so close, it's hard to imagine women getting the vote in 1919 without the force and power of the spiritualists who were able to spread the message of suffrage to people who may not otherwise have taken notice. Seance mediums held small seances in their homes or private rooms, summoning the dead to appear and communicate with their attendees. Spiritualism's origin and progress across the country was followed closely in Montana. Newspapers throughout the territory regularly reported accounts of spiritual practitioners with a decidedly skeptical tone. Early accounts through the 1860s reported of spiritualists who poisoned their children and killed their families. Politicians were denigrated by calling them spiritualists. Spiritualism was joked about and even used as a means uh, of selling another type of spirit, as in this ad uh, in, from the Deer Lodge Saloon. Spiritualistically speaking, the medium who superintends affairs has ordered a congregation of spirits of the most reliable quality. <laughs> and finest brands for the, and this is, get this, the imbibation of the imbibulation of the imbibing imbibulators who imbibulate their imbibations at the imbibulating saloon known as the Excelsior Deer Lodge. So do all stop by. <laughs> No reports of any local spiritualist activity appear, however, until about the 1870s when Montana newspapers cross over to the dark side and start reporting with increasing interest and credulity spiritualist activities in the state. It's through these accounts that we can begin to trace together, put together the story of spiritualism in Montana. Though there were many practicing spiritualists here, we're gonna focus on three specific women uh, in particular who represent each of these three types of uh, spiritualists. The January 8th, 1875 edition of the Mos Bozeman Avant Courier announced, there is just now some excitement growing out of spiritual manifestations and it is, and it is extending into this country. Various reports are in circulation as to the communications of the spirit world, wherein some who are afflicted by receiving medical treatment for diverse diseases and deriving benefit. The spiritual manifestations and spirit healing referred to here were performed by Bozeman's own Mrs. Emma Hoffbauer Mounts, who became nationally known in spiritual circles as Montana's mountain medium. The following information comes from several biographical sketches of Emma in the Religio-Philosophical Journal, a national spiritualist publication. 
Like many others, Mrs. Emma Mounts came to Montana from Wisconsin in the 1870s with her husband, Matthias Seinmounts, in search of gold. The gold didn't pan out. <laughs> so they settled in Bozeman, where Cy worked in a local saloon. Emma's mother had been a woman of some spiritual ability. She was said to be able to accurately predict the outcome of Civil War battles. Emma, however, didn't discover her own powers until she was gripped with a life-threatening illness here in Bozeman. In December of 1874, Emma was diagnosed with dropsy of the heart, which today would be called pulmonary edema, or swelling of the heart due to fluids. Dropsy of the heart in the 19th century was a virtual death sentence. Many reported uh, death cases, uh, many people d died from dropsy of the heart and was a commonly uh, reported cause of death. Emma's doctor pronounced her case hopeless and left her dying in the arms of her husband when three local spiritualists held a seance asking the spirits for help. Through the seance, the spirits asked to magnetize two sheets of paper, the magnetic force being seen as an invisible spiritual force. Then, in trance, one of the spiritualists grabbed a pencil and paper and began writing backwards. May heaven bless this paper, and may it be the means of curing Mrs. Mounts. Apply it to the parts affected. The sheets were taken at once to Mrs. Mounts and applied to her body. In less than an hour, her pains had passed, and she saw and conversed with the spirit of her dead mother. After this contact, it was said that her full powers of spirit sight and spirit healing unfolded. She began conversing with a group of eight spirits, one of which was named Dr. Kellogg, the spirit of a deceased physician. Dr. Kellogg would become her principal spirit control. Within a few hours, she was sitting up in bed and eating broth. The local physician returned and took credit for her healing, telling her to continue taking the medications that he had prescribed. Dr. Kellogg, however, told Emma that if she continued to take any of those medications, she would certainly die. She immediately ceased the medication and made a full recovery in a few weeks. More than this, though, Emma Mounts had become a healing medium. During her recovery process, she noted that her 18-month-old son had grown quite fussy. Dr. Kellogg informed her that the child had swallowed a pin. Emma was able to use her spirit sight to see the pin in the child's body. Dr. Kellogg then suggested that this could be an opportunity for her to share her abilities with the community. Emma gathered a group of respected local men and explained to them that her child had swallowed a pin and she would predict precisely where the pin would date, the, precisely the date and time and location that the pin would emerge from the child's body. Over the next three weeks, the men regularly visited the Mount's home and monitored the progress of the boy. Over time, they noticed the skin turning more red and irritated in the spot Mrs. Mounts had predicted. Uh, and uh, and uh, over time, they noticed that the, the, the spot became red and irritated. Sorry, I've lost my place. Um, on, on the final day, the group gathered to witness a headless pin poke through the skin of the child at exactly the time and place predicted. The group quickly signed a sworn testament of the facts and ran it over to James Wright at the Bozeman Times, and he published it immediately. This revelation in the Times caused an immediate stir in the community, which lasted throughout the summer and fall of 1875. The March 19, 1875 issue of the Deer Lodge paper, The New Northwest, 
mentions that the Reverend T.C. Eiliff of Bozeman preached on spiritualism and agency of Satan. The Bozeman Times counteracted with articles supporting spiritualism. Its editor, James Wright, was a thinly veiled supporter. The Bozeman Avant Courier, however, continued a more skeptical tone in commenting on the seemingly extraordinary events. Once healed, Emma Mounts began healing others. Through channeling Dr. Kellogg, she prescribed magnetic therapies and herbal remedies to patients who had given up, had been given up by the local physician. She also held seances in her home in Bozeman and channeled the spirits of deceased loved ones to communicate with their uh, living relatives and many other seemingly unexplainable feats. It's impossible to explain Mrs. Mounts' mediumistic manifestations from this distance in time. But some more of her background may give us a clue. Emma married Cy Mounts when she was 15 years old and immediately started traveling with him west, stopping at several points before reaching Bozeman. Cy suffered from a pulmonary condition which caused him to be frequently ill and unable to provide for, the growth, for their growing family of four children. Emma was often forced to take up work during a time when opportunities for women were extremely limited. She took what work she could and even served as a cook at Fort Parker, the first Crow agency, for a time. She was only 20 years old when her mediumistic powers revealed themselves through her illness. She had also seen the public interest in her mother's powerful predictions back in Wisconsin. Did Emma see spiritualism as an opportunity of providing for her family as a woman? If so, she went to extraordinary lengths to convince the town of her abilities. Emma and Cy were eventually able to renovate the Laclede Hotel in 1890 when they took over its management, though Cy had worked primarily as an innkeeper at the saloon next door while raising four children. I suspect the, excuse me, I suspect the renovations were paid for, uh, at least in part, by money Emma made from her work as a healing medium here in Bozeman. The spirits certainly served them well, and one could say in both cases, since he was a saloon keeper, right? Uh, as they lived in considerable comfort through their, their latter years here in Bozeman. Mrs. Bell Chamberlain was an already established trans speaker working the Northeast Corridor circuit as a paid lecturer when she came to Bozeman in October of 1878. She was kicking off a year-long tour of Montana with a two-week engagement in Bozeman, speaking for the Young Men's Library Association. She would soon come to make Bozeman her home. Bell Chamberlain was praised as an engaging and eloquent speaker by both spiritualists and non-spiritualists alike. The Bozeman Avant Courier in October of 1878 went so far as to say, the lady as a speaker is considerably above the average, and not only has the power of riveting the attention of her audience, but at times is quite eloquent. She's a natural orator, and, she, and had she been educated for a lawyer, she would have been eminently successful. Bell spoke on a number of topics, but often the topics were chosen by a committee of audience members, ensuring that it was the spirits and not Bell herself that was discussing the topics at hand. As a trans speaker, Bell would channel her cater of spirits who would speak through her on topics required. She also would see the spirits of dead friends and relatives near audience members and would share messages from the spirits to the living. Most often, though, she would share the spirit's messages on, on, topic, on, on important topics of the day, which also included predictions of, for the future. 
1879, she spoke at O'Neill's Hall in Deer Lodge, where she predicted, Republicanism and democracy will be known only as uh, party organizations of the past, while politics and religions are to be united, and a fierce and bloody war will, will occur throughout the length and breadth of our land and result in the downfall of the American Republic. One might say she's a little prescient considering what's going on these days, right? <laughs> Bell did, however, have some regular topics that she spoke on with spirit help, and those uh, uh, that weren't proselytizing spiritualism concerned, concerned women's lives. An 1880 Rocky Mountain Husbandman article notes her lectures on man and woman are said to be very interesting, but her essay on love, courtship, and marriage is very popular. <laughs> by all newspaper accounts, Belle Chamberlain took Montana by storm and leaving a marked impression on each community where she spoke. This is certainly made clear in Bozeman in a September 1879 letter to the editor of Bozeman's Avant Courier by Mr. William Blunt about the impact of one of Bell Chamberlain's speeches here in town. The letter is titled, Uncle Blunt Protests Against Those Physiological Lectures to the Ladies, A Leaf from His Experience. Well, it seems that Mr. Blunt arrived home late one night after a school board meeting. His wife, Sally, had earlier attended the lecture that Bell Chamberlain had given with her friend, Mrs. Strait. While tiptoeing into the bedroom as not to disturb the sleeping wife, Mr. Blunt accidentally tripped on the washstand, knocking it to the floor, and then proceeded to fall into the filled bathtub, upending the contents and making quite a commotion. <laughs> Sally, of course, immediately sprang up in bed, screaming, murder! <laughs> then realizing it was just her clumsy husband began to berate him. Mr. Blunt, wet and dripping with blood from his nose, which he had hit on the floor, just wanted to crawl into bed and forget the night's disaster, when Sally told him that Mrs. Chamberlain had said it was unhealthy for man and wife to sleep together, and that she had prepared the bed in the spare room for him where he would be sleeping from now on. <laughs> Mr. Blunt reluctantly tromped down the hall to the spare room and crawled into bed. A few minutes later, his wife arrived apologetically with a wet rag in hand to sop up his bloody nose. After a few minutes of consoling talk, uh, Mr. Blunt asked that, well, maybe just this once, under these circumstances, he could just sleep in his own bed just for tonight. And Sally replied, no, sir, you stay right where you are, <laughs> and left the room. He concludes the letter. And now, Mr. Editor, I protest against this new rule and against those lectures on physiology. For, let me whisper it, the women know a slight too much already. <laughs> Bell Chamberlain was clearly speaking of manners concerning women's issues, which show us how spiritualism acted as the medium for the message of reform. People came to lectures by trans speakers to hear messages from their dead relations, but came away with ideas about social reform. Bell Chamberlain's talk about physiology that Sally Blunt had attended was probably addressing the fact that married women had no control over their own bodies in the 19th century and were at the will of their husbands when it came to sex and pregnancy. One way to gain some control was to sleep in separate bedrooms, a healthy alternative according to Bell Chamberlain's spirits and a solution popular, popularly preached by women's rights speakers across the country. Was Belle Chamberlain actually channeling spirits from beyond, or was she speaking in her own voice? We'll never know the real answer to that, 
But channeling spirits, particularly male spirits, gave women a public voice in the 19th century, where there was no such opportunity before. As the century progressed, many of these women went on to become public speakers on their own, no longer needing the mask of mediumship to address an audience. Belle Chamberlain was one of these women. Belle announced her retirement from channeling spirits in, September, in the September 1887 issue of the spiritualist journal, The Carrier Dove. Belle was 60 years old and wanted to settle down to her new life in Bozeman, where she had recently married a local judge and spiritualist, Joseph J. Davis. She changed her name to Mabel Davis and intended to live the rest of her life out in quiet contemplation. In the letter, she reviews her life as a touring trance speaker, which offers us a glimpse into the tireless efforts these women made on behalf of spiritualism and also on behalf of women's rights. In Wisconsin, Minnesota, Missouri, Iowa, California, Oregon, Washington Territory, Puget Sound Islands, British Columbia, Idaho, Nevada, Utah, and Montana, in populous cities and remote mining camps, in villages and in country settlements, in log schoolhouses, at street corners, in hotel dining rooms, in railroad reception rooms, in private houses, in churches, in halls, in opera houses, in theaters, on campgrounds, by sunlight, by gaslight, by lamplight, by candlelight, have my guides, my instructors, entreated and compelled me to go that the chains of bigotry might be sundered and the soul-cheering fact of immortality established by the sweetest and best of testimony, the asservations of those whose winged thoughts reach us from the other shore, the sweet spirit land. In every place, giving tests of spirit presence by clairvoyance, by psychometry, by clairaudience, by healing, by speaking invariably upon subjects selected for lecture after I had taken my place upon the rostrum by a committee chosen from the audience, embracing the largest range of subjects, reaching from the cause of gold in the black sands of the Oregon coast to the origin of life, by my endurance of persecution, threats of imprisonment, imposition of license taxes, and attempts at suppression, being often looked upon with distrust and more often with fear, but in spite of all, sustained through all, by an unyielding faith of knowledge of the truth of the things I promulgated. And as to these labors and ministrations, hundreds can give willing testimony. Bell saw herself as a true missionary pioneer in moving the message of spiritualism throughout the West. She was one of the few traveling trance speakers that spoke regularly throughout Montana. Bell didn't require, retire quietly, as you can imagine. Her years of public speaking experience gained her the respect of the community. She uh, coached the local high school debate team and participated in town debates herself, where her thoughts and ideas about women's rights and religious freedom were respected. She also helped found the Bozeman Liberal Union, whose object was to give a free platform to intellectual, social, and moral ideas and all shades of religious and non-religious belief. Bell served as treasurer of this newfound organization, along with other such prominent members as Nelson Story, Daniel Rouse, and the Reverend Matthew Alderson. The tireless work of trans speakers such as Bell Chamberlain contributed greatly to Montana women getting the vote in 1914 and to the National Women's Vote of 1919. 
Spiritual, spiritualism had evolved from the decoding of spirit rapping in its early years to more exciting performances of object levitation and manipulations. Towards the middle of the 19th century, mediums were manifesting fully embodied spirits who walked and talked among the audiences, such as Katie King here from the spirit land. Spiritualism's pop popularity also attracted, as you can imagine, fakes and frauds who deluded naive audiences with fabric ghosts and Halloween masks. Note the image on the left. You kind of wonder how, of course they didn't have TV back then, so they were maybe a little more gullible. But I don't know, I don't know how they'd pass that one off. Such charlatanry would prove the downfall of spiritualism towards the turn of the century. Many scandals of hoaxes and frauds sent shockwaves through the, through the public and the spiritualist communities, causing more skepticism when it came to spiritual activities. A reporter at the Anaconda Standard calling himself the spiritualistic scribe was just such a skeptic. This journal re journalist reported on the spirit comings and goings around Butte and Anaconda in the 1890s. Where Bozeman had been the center of Montana spiritualism in the 1870s, Butte became a haven for spiritualists in the 1890s. In fact, so many spiritualists had lucrative practices that the town wanted to get a share uh, or a cut of their uh, uh, monies. Uh, and so they passed an ordinance, Council Bill Number 36, which required payment of $25 by clairvoyants, mediums, palmists, and fortune tellers for licenses to practice in the city of Butte. One particularly hilarious report by the spiritualistic scribe on a seance given by the medium Mrs. C.T. Newton <coughs> offers a glimpse behind the curtain of a private seance held by a channeling medium in Montana. And th this, by the way, isn't her. It's just an example of a medium in a spirit cabinet. We don't have photos, surprisingly, of any of these women. <laughs> The Anaconda Standard, Sunday, June 17, 1894. He sat with spirits, but the reporter was too smart for the mediums, so they gave him up. But at that private sessions, they hoped to be able to convince him spiritualism is just the proper stuff. Now don't cross your feet and let's have a good seance, requested Mrs. C.T. Newton as she fixed herself in her cabinet preparatory to holding high carnival with the spirits, addressing the motley crowd in the rooms of the Progressive Spiritualistic Association at their last regular meeting. Mrs. Newton is a new medium in town, and she advertised that she would give a seance for physical manifestation in the light under test conditions, to which skeptics were especially invited. Mrs. Newton had given out that she didn't want any reporters at her seances. And for the sake of precaution, she called at the standard office and asked a pleasant and accommodating young man in the business department to point out for her the man who wrote the spiritualistic articles for the standard. The pleasant young man did as he requested, and the medium took a good look at the reporter. And then she left the office. I just wanted to see him. The medium's precautions made the spiritualistic scribe particularly desirous of witnessing her seance, so he wandered around to the meeting place where Mrs. Newton was just submitting to the tying process at the hands of a blonde young man inclined to baldness and a foreign accent. He had tied her hands to the back of the chair in the cabinet. 
The medium talked through the, to the audience through a long tin horn, which protruded through a slit in the cabinet. And her articulation was so indistinct that the man at her side had to interpret, which he did so incorrectly that the medium several times lost her temper. <laughs> Edith Allen is here and wishes to talk to her father, announced the medium through the horn, but nobody would recognize the spirit of Edith Allen. She persisted in coming, however, and the seance was becoming embarrassing. Is the father not willing to recognize his daughter? Finally demanded the medium in desperation. And a man in the front row, meekly and rather suspiciously, replied, yes. Edith Allen then gave way to another spirit, but the interpreter did his work so illy that as punishment, he received a blow over the mouth with the horn. It had the effect for the next time he did better. And after the horn had its say, he explained, Mrs. Calder, your sister is here, and she's, she's very happy. Thank you, George, said Mrs. Calder, a 250-pound spirituelle piece of humanity with blonde hair who sat at the door and took the money. <laughs> who is George, ignorantly asked the newspaper man of his neighbor, an evidently devout, interested spiritualist. Oh, he's Mrs. Newton's controlling spirit, who had been in the spirit world for 26 years. His name in this world was George H. Moulton, and he died in Boston. Oh, you don't say. At this stage of the seance, the cabinet was opened to give the medium a breathing spell, and gave the slightly bald and blonde foreign accent an opportunity to examine the rope tying, which he pronounced to be just as he had left it. Mrs. Newton yawned and recovered as if from a troubled dream, and like a girl just coming out of a faint, asked, where am I? Her assistant swabbed her perspiration from her brow, and the curtain was drawn once again. By way of diversion, the horn requested a young man with a plain face and frightened mustache to furnish some music, which he attempted to do with a cracked accordion. Then there was more talk through the horn, and the man at the side of the cabinet got another swipe on the, uh, on the head for bad interpretation. A number of spirits came out, remained unidentified, and to break the spell, George called on two little girls in white aprons to favor him with a song, which they did, singing something about the spirit land. Then the cabinet manifestations were over, and the lights were turned on. The blonde, bald head accent untied the ropes, and the medium was released. She then proceeded to give tests through the audience. Two old ladies in the back part of the room were first selected. The medium took one of them by the hand and covered her eyes with a handkerchief and then informed the old lady that a spirit hovered about her with the name of Anna. The old lady no knew one in the spirit land by that name and the medium concluded that the name was Alice, but the old lady knew no one by the name of Alice. <laughs> Next came Elizabeth. No. Mary? No. And finally, in desperation, William came upon the scene, but still, uh, they were all strangers to the lady. <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps they belong to the other lady, said Mrs. Newton. I see them between you. So she sprang all the names with an additional John on the next old lady, but she also failed to recognize any of them. And the medium turned her attention to the foreign accent and told him that there was a Mary and John hovering over him. And he knew, knew no spirits by that name. So she took a walk through the aisle and returned with the name of Julius. She hid it that time. And the blonde, bald man smiled as he recognized Julius. 
The medium then passed on to another blonde man and told them that he was about to change his business and would do well, to which he agreed, yes, that's, that's right. There is a little girl near you, said the woman to a young lady. Her name is Mary. She died from some throat trouble. The young lady said yes and nodded her assent. The 250 pound blonde lady next took her turn at test giving and with a little better success than Mrs. Newton. She next turned her attention upon one of the old ladies upon whom Mrs. Newton had tried to force the spirits of Anna, Elizabeth, and William. I have a beautiful influence with you, said Mrs. Calder to the old lady. I see you surrounded with Indian spirits. Did it ever occur to you that you possess the medium's powers? I always knew it, was the old lady's reply. I see the spirit of Big Chief about you, continued Mrs. Calder. Is he your control? Yes, does he give his name, said the old lady. Yes, Big Chief, I told you. <laughs> He's got another name, but Mrs. Calder couldn't give it. Have you ever been in the public before? The old lady had not, and Mrs. Calder told her that she was committing a great wrong by suppressing her power. A few whispered words passed between Mrs. Newton and Mrs. Calder, and then the latter cast her optics, so to speak, in the direction of the hoodoo, and then came back to where he sat. You are connected with the newspaper, she said firmly and threateningly. There was no getting out of it. A plea of guilty and hope for mercy was entered. <laughs> you are going to get yourself into trouble, she said fiercely, and the hoodoo began to tremble, but forced a sickly smile. You may smile, but you will find I told you the truth, continued the 250 pounds. Others have smiled, but they don't smile now. No doubt about it, ventured the hoodoo. It is not business trouble, she added more calmly. I see a partition and a man standing behind it, his hands raised. I see him strike you. I warn you that within two or three weeks, you will be waylaid and seriously hurt. And while she was saying all these unpleasant things, she glared fiercely at her victim and gloated over him. That was what he got for a 50 cents admission he paid to the eighth part of a ton of humanity. In spite of the ridiculous thing, the childhood boogeyman got the best of the hoodoo, and when he left the hall, took the middle of the road and watched the corners of buildings for the man behind the partition. <laughs> Mrs. Newton's assistant, who turned out to be her husband, had taken a seat by the reporter's side and called to his wife, give him a test, he said, pointing to the hoodoo. Let me take hold of your hand. I see the names John and Mary. Nope, I have no friends or relatives of either sex in the spirit land. Then they are friends in life who are drawn about you. Perhaps I know a few people in this world by those names. You are far away from your people, next ventured the owner of the soft hand. That's a safe guess in this part of the country. <laughs> I see you have an enemy who is working against you, said the medium. <coughs> Correct, there are a few people who have no enemies. Yes, but I don't mean 10 or a dozen, but one particular enemy. And then she went away, taking her soft hand with her. She announced the seance closed after a benediction in which she said, we may not meet again in this world, but we will meet in the spirit world. They can't keep us from that. I don't know what there is in what Mrs. Calder told you, Mrs. H Newton's husband said to the hoodoo after the seance but my wife could tell you all about it and give you all the details, if there's anything in it. She gives permanent sittings at 74 East Park Street and no one goes away dissatisfied.
This wonderful account offers several points to expand on. First, the medium mentioned that she saw, no spirit, uh, she saw an Indian spirit control as the old chief to one of the attendees. Native American spirit controls were a singular phenomenon of spiritualism throughout the 19th century, both in the US and abroad. Across the country, many mediums claimed to be receiving messages from Indian spirits asking for help resolving Indian land rights and other atrocities during the Indian Wars, as well as offering Native uh, medical and spiritual advice. Author Molly McGarry, in her book, Ghosts of Futures Past, Spiritualism and the Cultural Politics of the 19th Century America, sees these disembodied native spirits as the containers of white guilt in the 19th century. Such manifestations can be seen as whites literally colonizing the afterlife, putting native spirits to work in spiritual aid to white people. Quite an interesting interpretation of that. Another point to be made by this passage speaks to Mrs. Newton's and Mrs. Calder's ability to make some connections to their audience. It's funny that popular names like John and Mary didn't seem to pan out, but Julius did and Big Chief did, and they certainly hit on a few points that seemed to be accurate. Not to imply that either Mrs. Newton or Mrs. Calder were fraudulent in any way, but such knowledge could be regular, regularly attained through the Blue Book, which was regularly circulated by uh, professional American mediums. It contained a collected personal information about people who frequented seances, so that's kind of how they were able to do it. Plus there were a few plants in the audience one would suspect as well. If we take the spiritualistic scribe at his word, Mrs. C.T. Newton seems to represent the degeneration of spiritualism at the turn of the century where dutiful missionaries of the new faith, such as B Mrs. Bell Chamberlain, had passionately attested to the beautiful, egalitarian afterlife awarded all. Frauds like Mrs. C.T. Newton and others performed mind and parlor tricks for money. Such frauds added to spiritualism's dwindling popularity at the turn of the century. Spiritualism's rapid rise mirrors the need for social reforms in the 19th century. The idea of a peace-filled afterlife, which didn't disconnect the deceased from the living, consoled the grieving hearts of a nation suffering from tragedies of the Civil War and rampant disease outbreaks. The communication between the living and the dead through invisible forces presented the possibility of scientifically proving an afterlife and even the existence of God. The notion of a summerland available to all gave an alternative to the outmoded Calvinist predestination doctrine under fire throughout the century. Spiritualism's tireless, predominantly female workforce offered the opportunity to bring the message of social reform to a public who might otherwise have been missed. Finally, spiritualism gave women a public voice and a chance for self-empowerment. In Montana, Mrs. Emma Mounts found medical alternatives to the limited and dangerous medical practices of the local physicians. Mrs. Bell Chamberlain offered a voice for women throughout the state. And Mrs. C.T. Newton, in her own way, found self-support and empowerment in a world with limited options for women. Thank you.